Good morning. morning. Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. We do this every week. We do this every week on the first day of the week as the early disciples gathered on the first day of the week. Last week, um, Kevin DeYoung published a blog titled, The Most Important Decision You're Probably Not Thinking About. It was posted, I think, uh, Kiss Chang posted it on our band site, and I found that article to be uh, very, uh, very interesting. In it, Kevin DeYoung told the graduates uh, in this baccalaureate message that he preached, he told the graduates that the choice to, to attend a local church is the most important decision they will make as they transition to college. He goes on to say that, that dorm Bible studies, chapel, and campus ministry cannot replace the local church. He reminded them that Jesus said to Peter, and we've talked about this many times, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not, not prevail against it. He went on to say, in the article that Jesus never promised to build up a Christian college. He never promised to build a Christian day school. He never promised to build a campus ministry. The only institution, the only one institution on earth that Jesus Christ promised to build, that's the church. And if you want to be into what Jesus is into, according to DeYoung, you will get into a church. And DeYoung also in the article quotes John Stott, who said, who has said, an unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. The church is not a divine afterthought. Now you may think, you may be here thinking that John Stott is harsh in what he's saying, but I don't think so. If you've listened to me for any length of time, you know that I'm in hearty agreement with both Kevin DeYoung and with John Stott. Many of you, most uh, hopefully all of the members of this church, have listened to our pillar series, which lays out our philosophy of ministry at Grace Bible Church. I would say that our philosophy of ministry, or the pillars of our ministry, call for a similar commitment to the local church. Now, as you know, the University of Florida is in our backyard. UF is the fifth largest university in the nation, if you didn't know that. Many, if not most, UF undergrads who are Christians tend toward campus ministries when choosing a place where place to worship. Many times they will actually forsake attendance at a local church and will attend a ministry that caters to students. And if we're looking at this objectively, the church itself actually models, I would argue, this pattern of commitment. We tend to segregate churches based on age and life situations. And in more than a few cases, families choose churches based on what's going on in the... I bet you can fill in the blank. What's going on in the youth ministry, the youth group. You see, we want our teenagers to be plugged in to a vibrant and happening youth group. But we don't. This is what... I'm getting at. It's not that we shouldn't strive to have a good, solid youth group. But we don't encourage the youth to actually participate in 
the church. That's a problem. And as I said last week, even regular attenders may only come to church a couple of times per month with little or no fellowship outside of the gathering. Therefore, when our youth go to college, the die, so to speak, is cast, is it not? They've never really been a part of the local church, so it's only natural to commit to an on-campus ministry or go to a church that caters to what? College-age students. So it just becomes an extension of youth group. In worst-case situations, they never make that transition to quote-unquote big church, and they fall away altogether, which is what we're trying to avoid, right? We don't want our children to sit here every Sunday or come here every Sunday and not actually become Christians. Yet we don't encourage them to do what they need to be doing to become Christians. They end up going to college and falling into an inappropriate relationship, then they completely walk away from the faith. I mean, that's what happens, right? That's the pattern. They choose worldly lust over walking with Christ, and we're left with wondering why. As parents, we're heartbroken over it. Didn't we send them to youth group? Didn't we do all the things that we should have done? Ultimately, we know that they were never walking with Christ, were they? Here's the point. When the local church functions as God intends, there will be saints from young to old, from poor to rich, from all walks of life dwelling together as they model the Christian walk to one another. The college student who is here just for a few years may actually be discipled by a 50-year-old father of four. The 50-year-old may be discipled by an 80-year-old saint. The older men and the older women teaching the younger men and women how to be pleasing to our Lord and so forth. Is that not the model from Titus 2? That this, true, this is true discipleship within the context of the body of Christ. When true discipleship is taking place, then the youth are being discipled as well. Both within both within their own families, by their fathers and mothers, and within the context of the church. That is the model for youth ministry. That is the model for youth ministry. Now, I'm not speaking against actually having a youth ministry, but the point is, the point is, is that we need to be assisting the parents to disciple their children so that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that they would have a faith that is their own. So that when they go to college, it's still their own faith. Now, I honestly believe this process starts within the family itself. Church healthy families are the strength of the church. Now, we spent these last few weeks in Ephesians 5 as we've studied God's blueprint for marriage and family. We have called this series Family Matters. Church we need to understand that families are the glue that hold the church together. Now, I'm not speaking, I mean, obviously Lord, the Lord Jesus is the one who's holding the church together, but the point is He uses and it works through the families. According to Paul, our marriages picture the greater reality of Christ in the church. Therefore, our marriages should paint a beautiful picture of this greater reality for all to see, for the world to see. And this includes our children, our youth. 
They are watching us. Ladies, your children are constantly learning about Christ through how you lovingly submit to your husbands. Men, they learn about God and His love for us through how you love your wives and how you love them. If you say you're a Christian and yet you don't sacrificially love your wives, then you can't expect, then you can't actually expect your children to see you as a, as a hypocrite. As a hypocrite. If you're different at home than you are in, uh, here, you're a hypocrite. As such, if you want to win your children, then you will love your wives like Christ loved the church. And that's what we saw in the text beginning last week. The question is, what does this type of love look like on a day-to-day basis? How do we practically love our wives in such a way that those who are watching get a glimpse of Christ's love for the church? Well, let's get started this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read our passage of Scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, this morning... Thank you and praise you that we can come together as a body of Christ, a family of families, if you will, so that we might learn more about you, so that we might walk according to your ways and not according to this dark, dark world. May you speak this morning through your word. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and you fulfill all your promises. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own, his own wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. On September 13, 2014, Tamika Brents entered the ring to fight Fallon Fox. During the bout, Brents, who is a woman, suffered a concussion and an orbital bone fracture. She also needed seven stitches to the head. This all occurred in the first round of the bouts. You see, Fallon Fox is a biological male who has undergone gone hormone therapy and, and surgery to live as if he is a woman. After her loss, Brent posted her thoughts regarding the fight to social media. She stated, I've fought a lot of women, and I've never felt the strength that I felt in a fight as I did that night. I can't answer whether it's because she was born a man or not, because I'm not a doctor. I can only say, I've never felt so overpowered ever in my life. 
and I am not, and I am an abnormally strong female in my own right, she stated. Her grip, this would be Fox's grip, was different. I could usually move around in the clinch against other females, but I couldn't move at all in Fox's clinch, end quote. As you know, it's politically incorrect for Brent's to say what she's clearly thinking. Fallon Fox is a man, and a woman does not stand a chance against a man. UFC president, a bastion of morality, I'm sure, had this to say. Their bone structure is different. Hands are bigger. Jaw is bigger. Everything is bigger. I don't think someone who used to be a man and became a woman should be able to fight a woman. Again, Dana White is skirting the real issue. Fallon Fox is a man and has no business fighting against a woman. You see, there is a profound difference between men and women. Just a few years ago, we didn't see too many women in the ring, did we not? I don't remember growing up and seeing women fighting, at least not often. Today, most fight cards include women's, women's fights. Generally, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that women are not built to withstand the brutality of boxing or MMA, mixed martial arts. And they certainly aren't built to stand toe-to-toe with a man. I think they call that abuse. Transsexuals are currently competing and dominating women's sports, if you are watching the news. From MMA to golf to track, these men are beating women at every sport because they are stronger and faster. It's just a fact of nature. Our culture, as you may know, is profoundly confused by this concept. Listen to this quote from social media, and it goes with, I promise you, Phil and I didn't, you know, we didn't talk about this, but just listen to this. I don't understand the problem. I'm constantly told that men and women are, are equal, and that gender is a social construct. I'm constantly shown women on TV and in movies that can beat up men easily. I'm told a woman can do anything a man can do. Dove commercials show that girls can run, punch, jump, and and do all those things just as well as men. So why why shouldn't men fight versus women? Why segregate sports? If transgender people who can, can use the bathroom, which matches their gender identity, why can't They choose the UFC gender class that matches their gender identity. And then it ends with this. You're not a transphobic, sexist bigot, are you? End quote. In our culture, if you believe that men and women are different and that women are the weaker, weaker vessels, you are a sexist bigot. Beloved, the church must never buy into this ideology at any level. It's critical that as Christians, those who are in Christ, followers of Christ, that we reflect God's blueprint for male and female. As Christians, it's also crucial that we reflect our roles clearly. Women should be women and men should be men, and both should live as God intends. Let me say this carefully. Any other way leads to chaos within the family. It leads to chaos within our churches. And it leads to chaos within society. In the first two chapters of this letter, Paul reminded the church at Ephesus of their glorious salvation in Christ. They had been 
saved by grace and had been called to participate in God's magnificent redemptive plan. Now Paul structures the final three letters of this chapter around a series of five walk statements. Starting in chapter 4, he called the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. The final four walk statements shed light on how Christians are to accomplish this in this dark world. In 5.7, Paul calls for Christians to avoid the darkness and to walk in the light. We do this by avoiding the unfruitful deeds of the darkness. These deeds include sexual immorality, which so clearly, as we have stated, characterizes our culture. In 5.15, Paul encourages the church to walk in wisdom and avoid the the world's foolishness. In 5.17, he encourages them, them to understand the will of the Lord. Therefore, we need to, if we understand the will of the Lord, we will recognize God's pattern for His creation. In 5.21, he tells the church that they should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, as such, we need to realize that God's intent for this world is one of authority and submission. That's how He's ordered this world, is authority around authority and submission. In 5.22-6.9, through 6, 9, then Paul begins to lay out God's pattern for marriage and family, starting with the role of the wives. Now, we looked at that a few weeks, a few weeks ago. In 5.22, he tells the wives to be subject to their own husbands. Now, this brings us to 5.25 and 26, where we left off last week. Now, we saw, last week, we saw that... Paul commands the wives to, or the, the husbands to love your wives. And we do so because that is God's command. Now last week we saw this command's audience and the command's ambition. Look at your text in 525. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now Paul's intent was to tell the husbands to love their wives. Now it's notable that he didn't tell them to lead their wives. We talked about this last week. As men, we have a tendency toward domination, or we have a tendency toward avoidance. Dominating them, or dodging them, if you will. Or a combination of the two. But that's not loving our wives at any level. Paul calls for us as men to sacrificially love our wives. And Christ's love for the church then becomes the measure of the love that we have. As a matter of fact, this is Paul's first illustration. You must love your wives because of Christ's sacrificial love. That's verse 525, the second part of it. Look back at your text. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now we know Christ's love for his church because of his sacrifice for her. We know that he actually does love the church because he sacrificed for her. In other words, his actions matched his words. He didn't just say, I love you. He didn't just say, I have a love for you. He actually did something about it. He has proclaimed that love and he has proved that love by going to the cross and taking upon himself our sin. In Acts 20.18, Paul told the Ephesian elders that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. He willingly laid down his life for the church. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He has redeemed us, and he has set us free from the slavery of sin through his blood. And as such, we have been reconciled to God. 
according to Romans 5, 8, that God, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Men, this is the level of sacrifice that should characterize your love for your wife. It's a tall order, is it not? I can promise you that any godly woman would desire to submit to a man like that. If, if your wife is having trouble submitting, may I submit to you that you are not loving your wife in such a way that she would want to. If your relationship with your wife needs work, may I remind you that you're probably not loving her in a sacrificial manner that is illustrated by Christ's love for us. In the words of John Piper, Staying married, therefore, is not mainly about staying in love. It is about keeping covenant. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is a sacred covenant promise. The same kind of promise that Jesus made with his bride, or to his bride, when he died for her. Men, when you say, I do, you are making a sacred promise to love her, as Christ loved the church. This leads us to the second illustration in verses 26 and 27. Men, you must love your wives because of Christ's steadfast love. Now in these verses, we're going to see three proofs of Christ's steadfast love for His bride. You see those, you'll see those in your bulletin. First, Christ proves His steadfast love by sanctifying His bride. Look at your text in verse 26. Christ gave Himself up for her, for her so that He might sanctify her. Now this word translated sanctify has the idea of being set aside or consecrated to God in His service. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed that His disciples would be sanctified in the, word, or the, God, in God, in the truth of God's Word. In other words, Jesus in John 17 was praying that His disciples would be set apart for His purposes. And in Ephesians 5.26, Paul picks up on this truth by showing that Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might set her apart from the world for his purposes or for his work. Now back in John 17.19, Jesus goes on to say, for, the, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus set himself apart for the Father's will. Did he not? And it's through that sacrificial act that the church has also been set apart to God and His service. Yet, we shouldn't miss the fact that God uses what? What does He use to do this, to accomplish this? It's clear in the text. He uses the truth of His Word to do this work. As Christians, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart by Christ through the truth of Scripture. Amazingly, this promise includes the entire bride of Christ. It includes those of us who have believed in Christ through the word of the disciples. Just listen to John 17, 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's talking about the disciples that were with him. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe, who also believe in me through their word. I would argue that Jesus' prayer indicates a promise that he would sanctify the church through the witness of the apostles. We must recognize that he has followed through on that wonderful promise, that he has set us apart uh, by the word of truth. Ultimately, that's the theme of Ephesians 1, is it not? Ephesians 1.1, Paul addressed this letter to the saints, to the saints who were in Ephesus. In other words, he wanted the church at Ephesus to recognize that they were a fulfillment or the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to sanctify future disciples through the, the apostles' word. Now here's the challenging part for the men. We are called as men to have this same type of love for our wives. Therefore, we're called to love them with a purifying love. A love which sets, sets them apart from the world. The MacArthur Study Bible aptly states, A Christian husband should not be able to bear the thought of anything sinful in the life of his wife that displeases God. His greatest desire for her should be that she become perfectly conformed to Christ, so he leads her to purity. Men, uh, the, the question is, are you leading your wives to greater and greater purity? Or do you tolerate sin in the life of your wife? Worse yet, worse yet, do you push her or, or even encourage her to sin? Many times we do this by pushing them, pushing our wives to satisfy our own sinful desires. You, you young men, when you proclaim your love for your wife-to-be, yet ask her to give away her purity before the marriage bed, your, lo your love is not this type of love. It's not God's love. It is selfish and it's self-serving. And it's certainly not purifying and cleansing. Let me just say it this way, just so that you don't misunderstand me. It is nothing but lust. And it makes your future wife no different than the world. And it's certainly, it's certainly not a love that sets her apart from the world. You married men. You married men, you ones that are already married. When you prowl around flirting with women other than your wife, you are rejecting your wife and you're leading her toward feelings of rejection and loneliness. And in doing so, you jeopardize your own moral purity, your own purity before the Lord, because these things tend to go further than flirting, and you may be pushing your wife to her own indiscretions. And in doing so, you're responsible not only for your sin but for hers. You're certainly not loving your wife in a purifying way. In his sermon on the verse, John MacArthur relates the following story. I thought it was an apt story, so I wanted to read it to you. On a popular talk show some years ago, the host interviewed two ministers. When asked what they thought of Playboy magazine, one of them replied, I think it is despicable. I wouldn't read it or have it in my home. It dishonors God, it dishonors men and women, and it dishonors almost everything else that is good. Good answer, right? The other minister said, Well, I'm an evangelical Christian, 
And I want you to know that my wife and I both read Playboy. In fact, she gave me a subscription to it. After, <laughs> after 18 years of marriage, we thought we needed a little something to stimulate our relationship. That man not only was defiling himself, this is in the words of MacArthur, that man was not only defiling himself, but encouraged his wife in the defilement. Whatever sensual desire motivated, motivated that couple to read such a magazine, it was certainly not godly love for one another. Certainly not sanctifying love for one another. Certainly not purifying love for one another. It was not the type of love that the Apostle Paul is describing here in Ephesians. Men... You must desire purity for your wife. And let me tell you something. Tell you something. This should include your daughters as well. You should protect them and do everything in your power. Everything in your power to ensure their purity. This brings us to the second proof of Christ's steadfast love for his wife. Christ proves his steadfast love by cleansing her. So, so he is set her apart, he sanctified her, now he proves his steadfast love by cleansing her. Look back at your text in verse 26. It says, Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now this verse is a little difficult to understand, and I know that a few of you have wanted to better comprehend its meaning. So, here we go. Whereas sanctify meant to be set apart for God's purposes, the word translated cleanse has the idea of purification. Uh, Very close in understanding, but one has the idea of setting apart, the other has the idea of cleansing or purification. It can also be used, the word can be used for cleansing of food, for ceremonial cleansing, or moral cleansing. In this case, Paul uses it to signify the moral cleansing of the people of God. In other words, Christ not only sets his people apart for his service, he also cleanses his people from sin. Now, I would argue that this speaks of the ongoing ministry of the Word which cleanses the church. The ministry of the Word washes the bride of Christ clean. When Christ saves us. We are forgiven of every sin we have committed or ever will commit. But after that initial full purification from sin, we still have need because we live in a dark and dying world and we live in the flesh. We still have need for periodic cleansing. Now you might say, well, what do you, I mean, how's that work? Well, John 13, in John 13, Peter, Jesus told Peter, he, he who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You get the idea there that we are completely, we've been completely cleansed, but there's the need of the feet feet to be washed. In other words, we have been fully justified before God, but we still need our feet washed as we continue to walk in this, this dark and sinful world, as we are in the flesh. We need the constant washing of the Word as we battle the sins of the flesh. Now, true to to Jesus' symbolic use of water to wash the disciples' feet, Paul uses water to symbolize the cleaning agent of the Word of God. In ancient 
Greece, a bride-to-be would be taken down to a river to be bathed and ceremonially cleansed. This cleansing was to remove the defilement of all her past actions prior to the marriage. After the cleansing, she was pure and could enter the marriage without spot or blemish from her post-life. The waters had symbolically washed all that away. The Jewish people have what they call the mikvah. This ceremonial bath is linked to conversion, to marriage, to the menstrual cycle, and to the birth of a child. Uh, The Jewish people would enter these special baths during these times of life so that they could be cleansed, so that they could be washed by the water. Uh, This was meant to be a to be not meant to be a physical cleansing, but to be spiritual in nature. According to a Jewish commentator, it is plain that the, that the laws about immersion are as a means of freeing oneself from uncleanness. Uh, uncleanness. These are decrees laid down by Scripture. Now, uncleanness is not mud, or filth, which water can remove, but is a matter of scriptural decree and dependent upon the intention of the heart. Now, that's important. Therefore, this I'm, I'm still quoting this Jewish commentator, Therefore, the sages have said, If a man immerses himself, but without special intention, it is as, it is as though he has not immersed himself at all. You see, the, the mikvah, The intention of the mikvah was to be spiritually cleansed. Now, let's apply this to Paul's statement in Ephesians 5.26. Paul argues that the true cleansing agent is not water, it's the Word of God. And it's through God's Word that we are cleansed. Men... You are called to use the water of God's Word to cleanse your bride. I remember clearly the moment I realized the effectiveness of using, of gently using, very important that I say that, gently using the Word of God to correct my wife. When I see potential sin in her life, I have two choices, one good, one bad. I could bluntly say, you are in sin. Now, as you may expect, (laughs) if any of you know my wife, and I know you do, this strategy usually brings a strong negative response from her and, and rarely works well. And it shouldn't work well because it's too blunt. Or I could come alongside her and gently ask questions such as, here's what I'm seeing. What do you think may be going on in your heart? Then when she replies, I use Scripture to reveal not just her heart, but both our hearts. You see, I'm a sinner as well, and I'm a sinner correcting a sinner. So I need to be very careful when I do so. Perhaps I'm in sin and not seeing the things as they are, or perhaps she really is struggling with sin. I can't tell you this always goes smoothly. (laughs) I wish I could. We're both sinners who need more of Jesus. But I can testify that I've seen the Word of God used in the right way. I've seen it cleanse both my wife and me. 
That's the washing of the water of the word. The picture here is gently bathing your wife with the word. Gently going to her with the word of God. Now, if you're struggling in this area of your relationship with your wife, here are a few reminders. Here are a few reminders. Important to to remind yourself. You must immerse yourself in the word of God. You must immerse yourself in the word of God. You cannot properly use the Word of God to cleanse your wife unless you actually know it. You know, when you say, well, somewhere it says this. Yeah, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And believe me, you, you can't use Scripture out of context to cleanse your wife. If she's astute, and I hope that she is, she will clearly see through your laziness and your lack of knowledge if you don't truly immerse yourself in the Word of God. So, first, you must then build your own knowledge of the, Word of, God, of the Bible. You need to spend time in it. You need to actually study it. Second, second, you must first apply the truth of His Word to your heart, to your own heart. Your wife will see... I promise you, your wife will see the hypocrisy of applying God's Word to her while you live as if the truth doesn't apply to you. And oh, well, oh, by the way, your children will as well. Your children will definitely stand up and say, yeah, Dad, that's hypocritical. If you're not living it yourself. In other words, you can't expect her to do as you say and not as you do. Maybe, I, I mentioned it earlier, maybe you lead a a double life. You have a a public persona, yet at home you treat your family harshly. I've been guilty of it myself. Or you tell your wife to submit to you, yet you do not love her with a Christ-like love. Or you expect her to remain true to you, yet you're not true to her. You see, the first application of God's Word needs to be in your own heart. needs to be in your own heart. Third, Third, you must pray for gentleness of the Spirit. You must pray for gentleness of the Spirit. Let me just say this. You can't use the Bible as a hammer and expect to be able to effectively use it. You've got to be gentle. Phrases such as, well, the Bible says you need to submit to me. Or the Bible says you're not to withhold relations from me. Those will only serve to harden her. Those will only serve to harden her. And therefore, you must learn to use the word rightly with gentleness. And when you do, I promise you that you will see growth in your wife. This brings us to the third proof of Christ's steadfast love for his bride. Christ proves his steadfast love by presenting presenting his bride. Look at your text in verse 27. It says that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Paul gives the point, the point of Christ's sanctification and cleansing of the church. In other words, or in the words of the New King James Version, it says that he may present her to himself the glorious church. 
I like that. You see, Jesus desires to present to himself the church in her glory. And he does so by setting her apart for his purposes and by, for, by cleansing her from all her sin. He uses the cleansing water of the word to gently cleanse her so that she will have no spot or wrinkle. She has nothing. She has nothing to detract from her beauty. He does this so that the church will be presented to himself, to him, as his pure bride, to dwell forever with him in his love. Can you only imagine the self-sacrificing love of our Lord? He removes us from the uncleanness of this rotten world. He sets us apart for his purpose. He cleanses us. Then he presents us without spot or wrinkle as holy and without blame. Men, you are charged to display this same type of love for your wife. The same type of love for your wife. You must make it your aim that at the end of her life, that you have cultivated purity and righteousness in her. In the words of Kent Hughes, the man who sanctifies his wife understands that this is his divinely ordained responsibility is my wife now these are hard words let me just let me just say this these are hard words is my wife more like christ because she married is married to me or is she more like christ in spite of me has she shrunk from his likeness because of me do i sanctify her Or hold her back? Is she a better woman because she is married to me? Those are important questions, men. Those are questions to to really think through. Young men, as you approach marriage, as you approach this young lady, the question is, is that is she going to be more like Christ because of you? Or is she going to be less like Christ because of you? Is she going to be a better woman because of you, or is she going to be worse off? Men, cultivating purity and righteousness in your wife is an arduous task, and it will require a steadfast love for her. As such, you must be diligent to love her with a sanctifying and purifying love for the rest of your life. This type of love doesn't doesn't account for her prior or even her current state. doesn't account for her own sin. It only looks forward to what she will be in the future. It expectantly looks to the day when she will be presented in all her glory with the rest of the church. This type of love, this steadfast love for your wife, doesn't tolerate sin in the marriage whether it be in you or in your wife. Steadfast love does not defile the marriage bed by pursuing other women or by viewing pornography on one's own or together. As the writer of Hebrews states, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Undefiled. 
for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Men, steadfast love also requires the confession of sin. In 1 John 1, 9, John actually connects confession of sin with the idea of cleansing. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see then this idea of, of washing again. Now, let me say, you are powerless to do any of these things if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's just window making or window dressing. If you try to, I mean, that's where hypocrisy comes from. If you try to make the world think that you're something you're not. That's why that cleansing is so important. I dare say, I dare say that so many, there's so many marital problems among so-called Christians because there's so many so-called Christians. If you don't know Him, if you don't know Him, then you still have need for cleansing. Before you leave here, join the tax collector. Remember the tax collector, Luke 18? What did he do? He beat his breast. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful. Be merciful to me. Pray. Lord, I need you to be saved. Save me. Pray, Lord, I am guilty. I deserve your wrath and I cannot save myself. You alone have the power to save me from the wretchedness of my sin. I call upon your mighty name, the mighty name of Jesus. I trust solely in the blood of your cross and cast myself upon you and you alone. O sinner, O sinner, do not leave here today without crying out to Him, for Him to save you, to wash you, to set you apart. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, I'll leave you with this. Go to your God at once. Even where you are now, cast yourself on Christ at once, ere you stir an inch. Don't let this day pass. Don't let this day pass. Your eternity depends on it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we it's with fear that I preach these things because I know that I fall so short with fear that I look in my wife's eyes knowing that I fall so, so desperately short. Yet, there's grace. Grace that saves us. Grace that sanctifies and cleanses us. Lord, may we receive your grace May you sanctify us. Lord, I know there's the mystery of sanctification. 
Is it our work or is it yours? Lord, according to scriptures both, that we need to trust in your grace. At the same time, we're called to these things. We're called to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Oh, we fall so short, and that's where grace comes in. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, who have put up that window dressing to show a watching world something that isn't really true, that their heart is not truly with you. Oh, they proclaim to be Christian as the culture defines Christianity. They're not truly, they're not truly in Christ. Or may you convict them even now. If there be any of those here today, may you convict them of their sin. May you convict them of their need for Christ. May they call out to you right now. Ere they move an inch. Pray these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.